0: Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, And for full details, contact d-a-r-r-e-n at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode.
1: Studies of gender and HRD are forever intertwined in that normative learning, people development, training, education is gendered, raced, and classed, and does require challenge.
0: Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and here in our third season, we're exploring the relationship between HRD and other topics and disciplines, with the help of leading authors, researchers, and scholars. Today, our focus is the relationship between HRD and gender. And our guest scholars are Dr. Jamie Callahan of Durham University in the United Kingdom, Dr. Sharon Maven of the University of Newcastle in the United Kingdom, and Dr. Melissa Jung of the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, all of whom join me for conversations recorded during June and July of 2022. Our episode today is structured into two halves – In the first 30 minutes, we look at what we mean by the term gender and its relationship to work, the workplace and HRD. And then in the second 30 minutes, we dig deeper into the relationship between gender and HRD. You can find out all about the questions explored in the episode, the three guest scholars and also the episode sponsor by visiting allbypodcast.com forward slash gender. Talking of sponsorship, Human Resource Development Masterclass is only made possible thanks to the wonderful support of our sponsors, who cover all of the costs associated with the series, and so enable us to release them free of charge to listeners like you. I encourage you to show your thanks by checking them out and letting them know just how much their sponsorship means to you. Today's episode is sponsored by the Board of the Academy of Human Resource Development which encourages you to attend its 30th annual research conference in the Americas, being held in Minneapolis, Minnesota, March 1st to 4th, 2023. It's the ideal opportunity to meet leading scholars, practitioners, and rising stars, including many of the guests featured in this podcast series, as they report their cutting-edge research and share insights on rethinking the meaning of work. The event is perfect for learning and networking, and AHRD is an inclusive organization that invites all of those who are interested in the field, no matter where they are on their scholarly journey. Mark your calendar for 2023 in Minneapolis. We look forward to seeing you there. For further details, visit the AHRD homepage at ahrd.org. Right, let's dive into the episode. Welcome to our episode on HRD and gender. Let's start by meeting today's three guest scholars. And first, I'd like to welcome Jamie Callahan, who is Professor of Organization and Ethics at Durham University in the United Kingdom. Jamie is the current co-editor of International Journal of Management Reviews and has earned numerous research awards, including the AHRD 2020 Scholar of the Year Award. Her research addresses issues of power and privilege in organized contexts, leading her to explore marginalized groups' experiences of leadership, learning, and organizational transformation. Her particular passion is championing gender equity. Welcome, Jamie.
2: Thanks, Darren. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: My second guest for the episode is Sharon Maven, Professor of Leadership and Organization Studies at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom. Sharon is co-chair of the university forum for HRD and was awarded the British Academy of Management medal for leadership in 2021. Her research interests are gender and women leaders, vulnerability, identity, learning, dirty work, gendered media representations, and organization studies. Sharon co-edited the Routledge handbook of research methods in gender in management published in 2021. Welcome Sharon.
1: Thank you, Darren. And hello, everyone from the Northeast. It's great to be
0: here. And my third guest for the episode is Melissa Young, who is Assistant Professor of Sociolinguistics and Discourse Analysis at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. Melissa conducts research on issues relating to language, gender, employment and family care, with a particular focus on post-feminism and neoliberal feminism in media discourse. She's author of Professional Discourses, Gender and Identity in Women's Media, published by Palgrave, as well as other contributions to journals and edited books. So welcome, Melissa.
3: Thanks, Darren. I'm excited to be here.
0: Okay, well, I'd like to start off our conversation today by exploring the term gender so that listeners are clear on that, ready for when we dig deeper into the relationship between gender and HRD. So what do we mean by that term, gender?
1: Thanks, Darren. We'd like to start, the three of us, by recognising our privilege as academics and employed by UK research-intensive universities. We each share a commitment to feminism as academic activists working for gender equity, and we're passionate about eradicating barriers which exist on the basis of gender, we're also aware that women do not all face the same challenges and other social identities do intersect with gender to shape our lived experiences. So acknowledging, for example, race, ethnicity, disability, class, age and sexuality and being intersectionally reflexive I identify as a white, semi-able-bodied, heterosexual woman, she, her, cisgender. Melissa identifies as an able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual woman. She is an ethnic minority in her country of birth and research community. Jamie identifies as a white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual woman so that we understand that people express and experience their gender and sexuality in different ways. And today we can only speak from our own lived experiences and our research as women, as academics, and as leaders. And we don't claim to speak for all those who identify as women.
3: So from what Sharon has said, we can already see that gender is a very complex concept that can mean different things. Um, In our daily lives, gender is often used interchangeably with biological sex. For instance, many demographic forms use the term gender when asking for our birth sex. However, gender theories see the two as linked, but not the same. So sex refers to our biological and physiological characteristics, that is the physical, chromosomal, and hormonal differences that distinguish us as male, female, or intersex. When we are born, we are assigned a biological sex. But as we grow up, we develop a gender identity, which is our personal sense of self, as women, men, agender, gender fluid, and so on. We can claim our gender. It may or may not be aligned with our assigned sex, And in some cases, may even change throughout a lifetime. Also, what it means to be a man or a woman differs for individuals and across cultures and time. In fact, there is no singular coherent gender identities, because what it means to be a woman, man, and so on, also depends on other aspects of a person's identity, such as their race, sexuality, religion, age, class, nationality, and so forth. And these operate together with gender in complex ways, mutually constituting each other to produce particular gender identities. Many societies view gender as a binary and only relatively recently recognize the complexity of gender. But there are also many cultures and societies that have historically accepted the idea of gender diversity and fluidity. And some even revere those who move across genders. So that's one definition of gender, an aspect of self-identity. The term is also used to refer to the socially constructed traits, roles, and practices that are closely associated with the biological classification of male and female. So many societies expect those who are born female to behave in ways that are described as feminine, like being emotional, cooperative, and nurturing. These are just examples since what is considered masculine or feminine is socially constructed and varies across societies but these scripts of masculinity and femininity are deeply rooted norms that shape what we do in particular contexts. and when a set of actions and behaviors is repeated and consistently associated with a particular sex over time they congeal to become gender for example every time a woman wears high heels to the office she's performing a gendered act that reinforces the gendered meaning associated with high heels and normalizes how women should appear. So in this sense, gender is not only a personal identification or sociocultural practices of masculinity and femininity, but also the organizing principles of society. And it shapes our roles and the division of physical, mental, and emotional labor in our homes, relationships, and workplaces. So the third definition of gender would be the social arrangements and practices that structure our everyday gender experiences.
2: Frequently, when I talk to people about gender, they don't talk about the way that their contexts structure their own identities. And, and I frequently use the, the video that the BBC put out Around Sophie and Edward, the way that they changed the gender appearance of an infant and then placed that infant with other adults who would be carers, both men and women, and how those adults chose to offer toys to the child based on their perception of what gender that child was. And so, those kinds of ways, the way other people look at us and treat us, is of uh, interpolation. It's the way that that um, we respond to being called as a woman or as a man or non-binary, the way that we're responding to others. So not just the way we respond, but also the, the way that we are in Althusserian kind of terms interpolated um, into being a particular gender identity.
1: For me, when sex and gender are conflated, For example, for leaders in organisations, sex and gender is conflated into gender stereotypes in my own Western culture. That certainly guides people's expectations of behaviours. One of the um, studies that Gina Grandi and I did was to theorise our understanding of what it's like to do gender well and do gender differently. If I do gender well against those stereotypes, I perform in feminine ways, perhaps wearing those high heels. And if I do gender differently, I perform in unexpected masculine ways. So for me, it's not the binary, it's the conflation of doing gender well and differently that shapes my experience. What are the purpose of studies of gender for me is to interrogate the production and reproduction and the resistance that people do engage in to those gender stereotypes which can also be found in social discourses and norms so that we can understand more about how those are shaping our day-to-day lives and also how we can activate to resist and change those. I
0: wonder if that actually gives us a, a segue into exploring gender within the workplace. And, and I know that ultimately we want to get to talking about the connection between gender and HRD, but it fe- it feels a big leap to go from defining gender straight into gender and HRD. So I wonder if the a, a suitable half step would be to first talk about the relationship between gender and the concepts of work and the workplace, and maybe how that relationship has changed over the years. So, 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 how do you see that relationship between gender, work, and the workplace?
2: In her landmark book, If Women Counted, Marilyn Waring, who was an economist, showed how gendered approaches to economics render much of the work that women do invisible and unvalued. Metrics like the GDP dictate what counts as work. Only market exchange activities, whether legal or illegal, like selling drugs or human trafficking, count as work. Things like laundry or cleaning up, shopping, cooking for the family, driving a partner to the office or the kids to school are all considered unproductive activities. And yet it's these kinds of activities that need to be done in order for society to function. And those who are traditionally expected to do this unremunerated work are women. And this is even the case within workplaces where women are often expected to do what's called the housekeeping as Sharon Maven frequently refers to. And this leads us to question then who does what work, who is even allowed to work, how work is assigned differently and how the value of that work shift over time depending on its gendered nature. So for example, in her textbooks on critical training and skills in HRD, Irina Grigulis recounts the history of secretaries. The job of secretary was a male dominated field that was prestigious and well-paid throughout the Victorian era and beyond. The popularization though of typewriters that fit women's hands better, brought more women to the field. They were cheaper to hire than men and the transition to extracting pay and prestige from the role began. And so think of the TV show, Mad Men. The world of computing shows a reverse trend. The group of women called the Harvard Computers in the late 19th and early 20th century, the Bletchley Park codebreakers of World War II, and the NASA Space Program, think of the movie Hidden Figures, which also has intersectional race implications, are all examples of how women dominated the field of computers and computer programming as they were pioneered. But after World War II, though, ideas of software development in the workplace and how to recruit and train programmers led to a growing masculinization of the field and accompanying rise in prestige and pay as women left the field. And so now we're having a worldwide effort to try to recruit young girls into STEM fields like computing. I do want to end my short time on a very serious point that on the 24th of June, 2022, the implications of gender and work changed radically and regressively for those who have uteruses and can become pregnant in the United States. So it's even more important now for HRD professionals to proactively address the motherhood penalty, the fatherhood bonus, the gender pay gap, and a whole host of other inequities and inequalities that are tied to those who can or do become pregnant.
3: I think this is an important point for us to remember that the relationship between gender and work is not a linear relationship. So many people tend to think about gender progress as something that is linear and um, we are seeing improvements. Some people believe that um, they don't have to label themselves feminist anymore because gender equality has already been achieved. And I think what happened on the 24th of June is um, Has made it very clear that those rights that we have gained can very easily be removed. Um, I think history has also shown that whether or not women are allowed to work is often based on the country's needs. For instance, when men were sent to war, then yes, we need women to fill up all these empty spaces, but when the men come back and women were pushed back into the home, whether or not we are allowed to work and what roles we are allowed to play, changes by government and economic needs.
1: That's really interesting, Melissa, because I was thinking about it as one step forward, you know, however many steps back. And, you know, it's it's almost as if the issues of post-feminism and being over-feminism, not needing to fight for equality anymore, That has been a very strong discourse in the UK over the past couple of decades, even longer. Then something interesting is really happening in in the UK at the moment, because we've had two significant public calling out of sexism towards very elite women leaders So, the the first one is Amanda Blanc, who is the woman CEO of Aviva, who made the brave decision to appoint a woman chief finance officer onto a FTSE board. And when she went to her shareholders' meeting for her AGM, she was told by her shareholders she was not the man for the job. And Amanda Blanc called it out on LinkedIn publicly, called out the sexism and called for collective action to change how sexist the behavior was. And the, the pivotal point was A, that she called out herself because it's very dangerous and risky for a woman in that position to do so. The penalty and backlash for doing that is significant. But her man chairman of the, the board also called it out in the shareholders meeting and, you know, reprimanded the shareholders and said it was unacceptable. The other very quick example was in the UK Parliament, where the UK Deputy Labour Party leader, Angela Rayner, she was accused by another MP, a Tory MP, of taking a fatal attraction approach to communicating with the Prime Minister in the way that she opened, crossed and closed her legs. And that was publicly called out by men and women and the public on daytime TV and on the on the BBC News so that the discourse that people are listening to at that point was, this is not on. So, actually, looking, interrogating whether the neoliberalist, post-feminist discourse is changing, is it is it certainly an
2: area for for future research. So, Melissa, you talked about the the World War II and the implications of of women going into workplaces. And someone who has become near and dear to my heart is a woman named uh, Dorothy Buchanan. She was the first professional engineer in the United Kingdom. And she built the Tyne Bridge, which, of course, is is where I live now in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And she had to leave the field because of marriage bars. In other words, when you married, you were no longer allowed to work. And that lasted through the 1970s. And in my own lifetime, my mother had to stop working when she began to show with me because you weren't allowed to work and be pregnant. So this shows the inequalities are fragile. and and can shift over time. I wanted to bring up another piece of area in response to what Sharon was saying in terms of researching what's going on in work and the sexism. I wanna add in a piece of resistance that we are also researching. So one of my PhD students is looking at the way that women are using their ability to take part-time work to resist against the work intensification. And women are doing this more frequently than men are. Um, because they use the opportunity to move into part-time work by leveraging the caring responsibilities they have, which are so frequently used as cudgels against them. They're using these as opportunities to take time during their careers and manage. This is in particular in in academia, but there's some evidence that it's occurring in the medical community as well in the United Kingdom. So the idea that the only way I can manage the things that I value is by working on them on part-time working part-time and using my free unpaid time to do the work that I value, which is associated with my remunerated work. So organizations are exploiting women further, but they're finding ways to put their identity in. So I, my PhD student, um, Jillian Hughes, is looking at this right now to try to understand why are women doing this? How are they using this as resistance mechanisms and And how will this shape and change work? At the same time, my other former PhD student, Mark Gatto, looked at fatherhood and looked at the way that men are navigating into a culture that does not value them for caring work and the way that they negotiate with their partners in terms of trying to structure their worlds around being fathers in a workplace that doesn't value fathers for caring work. So those are two pieces of research of the way that people are trying to shift the way we think about gender and work.
0: I wonder if now then is a good opportunity to start pushing into the HRD piece of this and to explore the connection then between gender and, and HRD. And as part of that, I'm um I'm interested in how research theory and practice in one influences research theory and practice in the other and whether that's one direction or bi-directional. So so how do you see the connection between gender and HRD?
1: From my perspective studies of gender and HRD are forever intertwined in my my personal experience and in my research um, in that normative learning, people development, training, education is gendered, raced and classed and does require challenge. My activism in relation to gender and HRD was born out of my frustration of educating women and men who were in work, in management and leadership there were, where there was absolutely no consideration of gender on the agenda in the curricula or in the learning theories at the time. So for me, they're intertwined. And with Patricia Bryans, one of our early studies was to focus on women learning to become managers through a woman's voice perspective, which had never been done before. We followed al and published the results in Management Learning twenty years ago, in two thousand and three. And you know this showed how women spend so much time in self-analysis, learning to be in contexts where they are the minority against normative masculine expectations. They are continually engaging in a process of discovering who they are in relation to the organizations that they're working in or or to the the roles that they perform, continually working to find a comfortable place that, that integrates them with their environment so that the process of learning is a process of othering in gendered spaces. And this has always been at the heart of how I have approached human resource development. You know, if you view learning as gendered, as raced and classed, you bring a different lens. It's like putting on a different pair of glasses, putting on a different set of goggles to view HRD. Um, And an example of that is, is how it shapes you in how you act as a coach how you approach being a coach, how you approach being a mentor in coaching and mentoring individuals and how you interpret the issues they face and how they articulate those in organizations. And it's taken me over 20 years of activism in UK business schools to actually have gender, race, class and other social identity differences included in a programme-long critical pedagogy for work-based learners. It's taken me another 20 years to finally examine a doctoral, an excellent doctoral thesis by a practitioner which examines sex, gender equity, and inclusion in corporate training and development programs. And it's a thesis by Ingeborg Croes, and she's worked with senior executives who shared how gender has impacted on their learning and development. And she showed that current training practice does not recognize this or address the impact of gender or other social identities. And you know, we all need to be asking ourselves about our pedagogies and our interventions. You know, who is invited, whose realities are reflected, who benefits the most from this learning opportunity? And you know, look thinking about the intersection between HRD and gender, Carol Elliott and Valerie Stead have published some wonderful work over time on women leaders learning in situated contexts and Laura Biamira, in you know it, around the same time as we published women learning to be managers in 2002 published on taking a feminist approach to hrd questioning our assumptions our research designs and confronting the effects of research and I think for all of us, we can see two decades on that this might actually be taken seriously in a way that's meaningful for HRD now. And of course, um, very recently, Julie Gedro has just published with colleagues on experiences of COVID and the implications of HRD. And they have raised those issues of gender, race, class, precarious work and technological access. So I'm hopeful that all of this work that's been done is on the cusp of recognition in HRD.
3: Um, Building on what you said, Sharon, I think it's important for us to recognize that we become leaders and that is a process. Becoming a leader is not just putting on a particular set of clothes, um, from my own experience, I find leadership actually very stressful <laughs> because it is learning a new set of behaviours and um watching how people assess you and learning from there what are considered the norms and it's true it's not only just related to your gender but also your ethnicity Um, leaders of different races are treated very differently Um, it's related to your class it's about are you the first generation to be to work in a university because then you're not really familiar with the norms as well and I think such research is important because from my own experience I find that when you highlight issues like the double bind stereotypes or the gender pay gap, very often people would dismiss them because they would like to believe that they are not sexist and that they are hiring people based on merit and not on anything else. And the organization is paying everyone fairly, but bringing up evidence from research
2: actually helps. I I completely agree with, with sharing those statistics and the studies that have been done that really show that there is a difference, that that... Um, There is not equality and there is not equity. There is neither of those things. And we need to be striving for equity. One of the things I see happening so frequently and one of the things that was a gateway to me to becoming a director of of equality, diversity and inclusion um, in my faculty was the idea that so frequently we go into training programs and we try to fix the women without raising the structural issues that are barriers. And that's just cruel um, because it's raising the hopes and expectations of women that if they fix themselves, that they'll suddenly be able to get that promotion. They'll suddenly be able to get pay, And yet we know that that doesn't happen. Too frequently, especially here in the UK, we have shiny badges. Um, that HRD people, HRM people are very frequently the ones that are put in charge of leading the effort on getting the shiny badge around race equality, gender equality, stonewall, disabilities, all of these badges to say, hey, we're good at doing these things. But the reality is the way that we work on those is by siloing them into the award criteria so we can get the badge instead of looking how do we change the broader culture, even in small ways and and know that this is one bite at a time.
0: We'll be back in a moment with more from Jamie, Melissa and Sharon, as we dig into the relationship between HRD and gender. First, though, here's an important reminder that this episode is brought to you thanks to the wonderful sponsorship support of the Board of the Academy of Human Resource Development, which encourages you to consider joining and becoming a member. AHRD is a professional home, a place to learn, teach, and share, a space to research, publish, and present, a network of scholars, teachers, researchers, and practitioners to connect and to apply the art and science of human resource development to change organizations and transform the world through human flourishing. With almost 500 members, AHRD is a global organization made up of, governed by and created for the human resource development scholarly community of academics and reflective practitioners. Membership includes online access to four peer-reviewed world-class journals, two decades of conference proceedings with cutting-edge research and thought leadership, and much more. To learn all about becoming a member of AHRD, visit the Member Central page at ahrd.org. Right, let's return to our discussion for the second half of the episode. Welcome back to our episode on HRD and gender, where I'm joined by Jamie Callahan of Durham University in the United Kingdom, by Sharon Maven of Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, and by Melissa Jung of the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. To kickstart this second part of the episode, what I'd like to do is to start by exploring the increasing focus that we've been seeing on transgender and non-binary issues over the last few years. And I'm wondering how you see these fitting into the wider discussion that you've already explored about gender within organizations and maybe what some of the steps organizations should be taking as a result
2: certainly there has been increased focus probably over the last two decades as noted by the American Psychological Association. I and mean, I think it's a really good thing that we're starting to pay more attention to it. And as I try to respond to that question, I first want to be clear with everyone that as someone who identifies as a cisgender woman, in other words, I identify with the same gender assigned to me at birth, I cannot and I do not presume to speak for transgender and genderqueer individuals. So, and as the three of us noted at the beginning of this podcast, we can only speak from our own experiences and our own research expertise. So far too frequently when we say gender, people assume women, and that's not even representative of a gender binary, much less non-binary or trans individuals. The APA or the American Psychological Association first came out with their guidelines for psychological practice with transgender and gender non-conforming people in 2015. And HRD wasn't very far behind with Laura Birma's keynote speech at the 2018 University Forum for HRD conference, which really marks the awakening of the concept of gender hegemony in the field of HRD. And Laura later contributed her keynote to a 2020 special issue of Human Resource Development International on gender hegemony that was guest edited by my colleague, Carol Elliott and myself. I really want those dates of 2015, 2018, 2020 to sink in a little bit. It's only been within the last decade that some of the major fields that are affecting the lives of workers, including HRD, really started paying attention to the issues associated with transgender and genderqueer people. And this is despite the fact that the leaders of the 1969 Stonewall riots that sparked the whole LGBTQ plus rights movement included transgender women, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. So research by a variety of of different institutes and scholars suggests that transgender individuals represent about one half to 1% of the world population and studying transgender issues can be really difficult because of the inherent dangers that trans people face just by being easily found for or from research. So developing a sample that can yield substantive results can be really challenging. And analysis of the 2017 and 2018 US National Crime Victimization Survey found that transgender people are more than four times more likely than cisgender people to experience violence perpetrated against them. And transgender women of color are the most vulnerable group and they represent four out of five anti-trans murders. So as HRD professionals, I think we really need to work on making our workplaces safer and more inclusive. And that starts with respect. One of the ways we can do that is by simply believing them. This was a key takeaway from surveys that were conducted by Forge, which is a nonprofit group supporting survivors of violence against trans people. But believing our trans colleagues is not just restricted to violence against them. Um, It's also about microaggressions that emerge from everyday policies and practices. And it's so easy to write off microaggressions as coincidences when you're in a position of privilege and we need to fight against that temptation. Having had the opportunity to work closely with a transgender non-binary colleague, I have a much clearer picture now of how all the seemingly minor policy decisions, not in their favor, added up to the point where it was clear that there was a pattern of indignities and microaggressions that denied them opportunities that other people took for granted. Respect also includes using the name someone tells you. So even if it doesn't match your perception of their gender identity, you can't look at someone and know their gender identity. So don't ask trans people what their former name or their dead name was. From a policy perspective, HR records should reflect a person's chosen name rather than a legal name, unless it's required by payroll or bank records, which, by the way, is something that many women who marry are also confronted by. Ask also what people use as their pronouns and and use them. And it's okay to make mistakes, Heaven knows we all do. Our entire field is built upon the concept of learning and we would not be very good HRD professionals if we believe that people were required to be perfect all the time, we'd be out of a job. So apologize, fix it and move on and try to do better next time. In addition to those things we can do personally, there are also policies and practices we can seek to address at the organizational level. For example, earlier in this podcast I mentioned Miss, Mrs, and Ms, and Mr, I would add, as common titles for personnel purposes. Adding mix is a good way to respect that not everyone falls into a binary category. So consider how you collect data that ends up imposing pressure to conform to social gender identity constructions. Dress codes are another example, whether it's Billy Porter at the Oscars, Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue, British schoolboys wearing kilts in protest about being required to wear trousers, or women being required to wear high heels or skirts. If you don't already have one, write it, a workplace anti discrimination and anti harassment policy that explicitly includes sex, sexual orientation, gender expression, and gender identity as protected categories. And I think it's also vitally important to bring up bathrooms or toilets. Deciding where to use the toilet can literally be an issue of personal safety, not just biological comfort. And this is something we can address through policy very quickly. It can be done and begin with identifying a single bathroom as gender neutral. This often occurs in a disabled facility, so it's not ideal. So the best option is to renovate and install new toilet facilities more easily used by all gender identities. And finally, I want to wrap up with saying, if you don't ask, you can't learn. And that goes for individuals and organizations. If we're not seeking to understand what transgender and gender queer people are experiencing, we can't do better and we need to do better. And we're just starting on this journey within the field of HRD. And I think it's a good place to start way too late. Um, I definitely agree with everything that you said, Jamie. Um, And
3: as a linguist, I would like to add that I think it's really, really important that organizations pay very careful attention to the language that they are using in policies, staff guides and other forms of communication to recognize the complexity of gender and also to ensure that you're not excluding anyone. Um, Take communicating about parental leave, for example. So it's important to use inclusive language that doesn't reinforce the male-female-men-women dichotomies. Um, For example, we can replace men and women and mothers and fathers with everyone or parents. Um, Additionally, we can avoid using gendered language that assumes that all parents are heterosexual. Instead of using wives or husbands, we can use generic references such as partners and spouses. Um, Similarly, staff guides pertaining to provisions for pregnant and breastfeeding staff should use inclusive language that make it clear that the policies are applicable to staff members of any gender who are expectant or breastfeeding parents. Um, Again, we can use gender-neutral terms, and as you say, instead of the feminine pronouns or masculine pronouns, so in this case, feminine pronouns she, her, herself, we can use third-person pronouns they, them, themselves. So these are just a few examples of how we can make our policies and communication a lot more inclusive of non-binary people as well as people of different sexualities.
1: I would like to draw out something that Jamie made reference to in terms of getting it wrong and um, unintended consequences and a perfect example that I have experienced is a university that decided to make changes to toilets in terms of gender neutrality on campus everywhere. And the unintended consequence of that was that all washrooms, toilets that were labeled women's toilets became gender neutral and all of the men's previous toilets remained the same. What started out as a positive step in the right direction ended up being very divisive. Uh, So it's that planning and talking to key stakeholder groups when organisations and HRD professionals influence changes to make sure they've thought through the unintended consequences.
0: There's a lot in... That answer, and then your answers to earlier questions that sort of point to actions that people could be taking. I'm thinking that there are likely to be people listening who are looking around their organizations and wondering, well, what can I do as an HRD practitioner? So what advice do you have for those HRD practitioners on how to look critically at their own organization's performance on gender?
3: Well, I believe that it's important to ask ourselves if we are rationalizing any gender disparities in our organizations through stereotypes and gendered myths. I'm currently conducting research on why some women in Malaysia exit the formal workforce. And I counted a very interesting study by Irene Padevic, um, Robin Eli, and Erin Reed. They had been asked by a global consulting firm to investigate why this organization had so few women at partner levels. So the researchers interviewed more than 100 employees across various positions, and virtually everyone articulated the same narrative to explain this gender difference, that top-level jobs require very long hours, and women's dedication to their families prevent them from putting in these hours and stalls their advancement. However, As these researchers spent more time with the people at the firm and examined their practices, they found that the work-family conflict explanation was not supported by their data. The real problem was a crushing culture of overwork, which encouraged women to take work family accommodation, such as going part-time, and this then derailed their careers. So quite naturally, the researchers came to the conclusion that in order for the firm to address its gender problem, it must first address its overworked culture problem. What was very interesting here is that the company leaders who had engaged these researchers reacted negatively to this proposal and continued to maintain that the women were not reaching partner levels because they had difficulty managing their work and family responsibilities and the firm insisted that the solution had to target and essentially fix the women. The researchers could not convince them otherwise, and so their engagement with the firm ended. So I thought this was a very interesting example of how universally held beliefs about gender, specifically women's fitness for the family and men's for work and the work-family conflict narrative prevented the actual problem from being addressed. So, with your regards to the question about first steps in taking action, HRD practitioners could consider if their current solutions to gender issues are actually succeeding and if this could even be hampering the women in the organisations. Some companies, on the other hand, might not have developed gender responsive policies and processes yet but are now thinking about addressing gender in meaningful ways. And more and more organizations are seeing implicit bias training as a solution. Organizations have to embed their commitment to equality, diversity, and inclusion throughout their policies, guides, and communications, not just policies that are explicitly focused on gender in order to drive a positive change in the company culture. It's crucial that companies avoid, for example, just dropping a sentence or two about gender equality at the end of their policies. Organizational communications could show that equality, diversity and inclusion is a core aspect of the company and make all employees aware that promoting gender equality is a key expectation of all their roles.
1: Thanks, Melissa. That that was a really great... um explanation, I think, in in terms of shifting thinking, I I really enjoyed that. And um, from from my personal experience in trying to make significant inroads into men-dominated patriarchal cultures, beyond looking at the culture, as you explained, I would also recommend gender proofing the critical HR processes. And even as a a gender scholar myself, as a Dean of a business school, in having written professorial job descriptions over many years, thinking that I was doing a really good job at it, of gender proofing it, I always now ask for independent critical view And questioning of what am I asking for in terms of essential and, um, you know, essential criteria? And what does that essential criteria look like? And then discussing what that essential criteria looks like with the rest of the selection panel. And that is a very provocative and challenging exercise that can really shift the opportunities that people have in selection processes. So I, you know, and you can go through that reflexive process of challenging the assumptions of what you're asking for in recruitment, selection, promotion, allocating additional responsibilities and opportunities for people
2: in any type of process. I really like that way of framing the nuance, Sharon, around what we're asking people to do when we bring them on to hire them. And that that goes to what Melissa was talking about with respect to the culture of overwork and what we're expecting of people. With respect to job announcements, I I also think one of the, a simple thing that we can do is who are we targeting? There are a number of, of text analysis softwares out there now. I won't name any specific ones, But you can look at something that decodes the gendered language that's in your job announcement. It's not just throwing on your diversity statement at the bottom. It's really looking at the language that you're using. And and I also wanted to address Melissa's comment about fixing the women. A fascinating study that I ran into a number of years ago at the Academy of Management Jay Kim and his colleagues did a study around lean in and messages of assigning people readings to do around self help. And the idea of assigning a book like Lean In or taking an approach of how do we help women lean in more actually backfires against. Women, so that they become not only do they need to take responsibility for um, leaning in and, and fixing the problem themselves, but they're also seen then as at fault for the problem, that the reason you're not making it in the organization is because of your own decisions. So we have nothing to do with it. There's nothing structural about it. It's it's all about you. So we need to be really careful about the strategies that we're using. And I think sometimes we come into them with really good intent of saying, oh, this will help you. But if you don't also frame it within the context of the institutional and cultural constraints, you actually can end up doing far more harm to progression of of women um, and transgender individuals within the organization than if you had stopped and reconsidered, what kind of messages do I wanna send and what, what, unintended consequence, to tie back into what Sharon was saying, saying, what unintended consequence might occur from this well-intentioned intervention that I'm proposing?
0: Now, during your answers to the questions throughout the episode, at times you've each referenced the need for organizations to work on gender and also work on other issues, including race, disability and more. So I'm wondering what advice you have for HRD practitioners on how to work on all of these in parallel, as opposed to sitting there and thinking, which one shall I pick?
1: I'll start with this one, because it's actually quite a provocative question, because there are tensions around issues of gender inequality being diluted by intersectionality and intersectionality as considering other social identities. So I think I would like to start by acknowledging that gender in and of itself and race in and of itself and other fundamental social identities, sexuality, disability, etc., can be defining, social identities for people that do need looking at by itself as a standalone but at the same time they can combine and multiply which is what we discussed earlier that that actually accelerates the possibility of marginalization and oppression so if I if I'm an HRD practitioner and I'm thinking let's just go for the whole lot what 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 am I actually going to do here Then looking at social identities that are not normative, i.e. in the West, white, able-bodied, heterosexual man. So anything that isn't that would be an othering social identity uh, where people can feel in the workplace that they are outsiders. We spend a lot of time and energy working out on how we fit into, into our environment. So working on a culture and environment which is accepting of multiple social identities means developing an inclusive and and equitable culture. So how would I do it? I would um, certainly gain total buy-in by the senior leadership team to inclusivity and what that means initially. Engage in listening um, exercises, and Jamie raised the, you know, listen to people and believe them. So if you engage in a listening exercise at all levels in your organization, in ways that enable individuals and groups to talk about what it's like to work here, what do they want to build on, and what do they want to change? So you can do that through one-to-ones, digital anonymous platforms. You can do it through stakeholder groups and actually collecting data about social identities in your organization and be inclusive in that, for example, include neurodiversity alongside other, the the social identities that we've talked about. Once you've got the data from listening exercises, then publish the key themes of what you've heard. So everyone hears that and those who've been involved know that they've been listened to. And that's the beginning of trust and valuing people's experiences at work. Agree key actions, not with the senior leadership team, but with the stakeholder groups that are, that are representative of people who, um, who do not meet that normative group in your organisation. And actually, education and training and development are, you know, are the key path towards changing people's mindsets around inclusivity. And this doesn't mean training and development for those who are marginalised. Don't leave fixing the problem with those who are marginalized, ask those who are normative and who have the power to make the changes, to engage in making those changes. So examples could, general um, exercises, which I feel draw out multiple social identities and privilege are, for example, variations of the privilege walk. There's also the, and I, I, this may be provocative, but there's actually the gender proofing and intersectional proofing of HRD practitioners themselves. So how inclusive are the, the HRD professionals? How diverse is the HRD team? How do they check their own assumptions in designing and delivering Interventions, OD or educational training and development? How inclusive are the logistics of your HRD interventions? You know, how inclusive is the content, the outcomes, the timing, the location? Even checking the HRD website of how people access any development or lear- learning opportunities. Checking inclusivity and who you're representing on that website is part of changing norms. And also obviously in the evaluation, include equity, diversity and inclusion aspects in your formal evaluation. Now, how, do, how inclusive did your participants, your leaders, your, your students, how inclusive did they find your session? or your
2: learning intervention, and how would they want to see that changed? One of the things we need to do then as institutions is make sure that we don't throw our trainers and our educators under the bus in their learning processes as as well. That's a, a, a resistance that I've come up against with people not being willing to actually take the feedback from individuals who are in their classrooms because they don't want to get in trouble. So they don't want to ask the questions or have someone look at the questions because they're afraid that the response of them in their own learning journey will harm them in their careers. So we need to look as HRD professionals in our promotion and progression kind of opportunities. How are we working? With, with individuals and working with the way that we are constructing our evaluation mechanisms.
3: Um, I just want to go back to what Sharon was saying just now about data because that really struck me, right? And I think that HRD practitioners really need to work with data that is more fine-grained, and this probably differs by context. So some companies would collect very fine-grained data and carefully categorize um, their staff and experiences, whereas some companies would probably just collect the very basic kind of categories like gender and race and not consider other um, social aspects or identity aspects. So I think working with data that's more fine-grained will be will allow the HRD practitioners to identify intra-group inequalities in their companies. And they also need to draw on research that has distinguished um, intra-group cultural stereotypes um, to explain these disparities within their companies. For example, I remember reading a study by Rosette and colleagues um, where they looked at how white women, black women and Asian American women were stereotyped very differently, and how this can affect our perceptions towards different groups of women leaders. And this also means that women leaders would experience different penalties in the workplace because of how their gender intersects with their race. So this is something that HRD practitioners could think about.
0: Well, I'm conscious that we're getting close to the end of our hour together. but I feel like we have time for A short answer on a question that probably many listeners are thinking about, which is what advice you have for researchers on HRD gender research, um, particularly research that could be prioritized over the next few years.
1: Yeah, thanks, Darren. Um, I, I think Melissa, Jamie and I have all talked in various ways about how important it is not to leave change to those who are marginalized and and those who are oppressed and and for those in in power and who are normative to um, take the lead. And there are such amazing examples of men allies in terms of gender equity and gender balance, but we're not hearing the stories. There's very little research about how men allies are making an impact in organizations, in developing inclusive cultures and gender balance. So I would certainly like to see further research accessing those men allies. For example, in the UK, in the FTSE companies, there are a number of men CEOs and a number of men chairs of boards who are very publicly and actively allies for gender diversity, where they have uh, led inclusivity and gender diversity throughout their organizations. So more conversations with them, more research about how they've done it, what works that other people can can learn from and implement themselves, I think would be great.
0: Well, that sounds like a wonderful call to action to wrap up the episode. And and unfortunately, we've run out of time for today's conversation. I've really enjoyed our time together. So thank you all so much for being a part of the episode and for exploring HRD and gender. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Darren. This has been wonderful.
0: Thanks, Darren. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Jamie Callahan, Sharon Maven, and Melissa Young. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There were 22 episodes in the first two seasons, and we're releasing a further 11 here in the third. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 75 leading HRD scholars from around the world. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode when we're exploring the relationship between HRD and philosophy. With the help of Fang Chung of Indiana State University, Claritha Hughes of the University of Arkansas, and Jim Stewart of Liverpool John Moores University. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the Human Resource Development Masterclass. Human Resource Development Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.